Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. The Other Hand is part of the Acast Creator Network. Hey, Jim. Welcome to the latest edition to The Other Hand. Welcome, everybody. Lots to talk about today. One thing we're not going to do a lot about, but Jim has got one kind of postscript piece, is Budget 2024. Two reasons why we're not going to do much today, although there is a lot still to be said, is that we have already spoken a little bit about it last week. And we will be putting up a podcast, a special podcast tomorrow, which is a recording of an event that Jim and I participated in, um, well, essentially was a big part of last week, which was a budget breakfast deep dive into a lot of issues around budget 2024, a lot of budget issues specifically about the, uh, the budget, uh, all under the auspices hosted by Octobuild, which is an association of a number of Irish construction companies. So our brief and our discussion, uh, yes, talks a lot about the global economy, the Irish economy, the context for the budget, but also the budget in the context of the construction sector, so important, particularly when you think about the housing crisis. So there's going to be a big deep dive into things budgetary tomorrow put up, which is, as I say, is a recording and event that Jim and I participated in last week. And anybody interested in, in a lot of detail, please, please do take a listen. So that's one of the reasons why we're not going to be doing very much on the budget today, with one notable exception. Jim has, as I say, something to talk about that emerged over the weekend after we recorded that particular event. I'm going to talk about war and Israel. And come up with some pretty gloomy prognostications, at least as they are coming out of certain uh, analysts and think tanks, and really ask Jim what he thinks about something that I wrote this morning, actually, to be frank. 
if we've got time after all of that, I want to talk about Things UK. Uh, we didn't get a chance last week with all that was going on to talk about the end of the conference season and how the political dice have fallen since uh, those conferences were over. Who's in, who's out, who's up, who's down in the opinion polls. And I want to talk about that in general. And in particular, in the context of the UK, there's an absolutely wonderful piece in the FT by Martin Wolf. Fantastic piece on, of all things, pensions. Don't let your eyes glaze over. Don't walk out the room. Don't put the kettle on. Pensions can be interesting. And in the context of the UK and in the context of the task facing whoever is the next prime minister, looking increasingly like Keir Starmer, that's a spoiler alert from the conclusions to that conference season, um, this pension thing actually raises all kinds of very deep, very fundamental issues that will smack Keir Starmer, if he is the next prime minister, around the face when he takes office. But Jim, let's start today with, I think there's some economic data and there's been some stuff out over the weekend about the uh, fiscal incontinence, shall we say, to use a medical term, of the HSE. I guess the, a couple of things um, came out over the weekend relating to the budget last week. One was there is quite a bit of criticism, as we alluded to, um, about the reintroduction of mortgage interest relief and the way it's being reintroduced. And um, it is anticipated it will cause lots of problems for government. I would agree with that. The second issue was that it has emerged that the health service believes it will be underfunded to the extent of about two billion um, in 2024. And uh, basically, the head of the HSE was on radio yesterday arguing that they would not be able to provide a full health service. And they've already put a recruitment ban in place or a freeze for certain areas of um, the health, the HSE. I, I actually don't know how to respond to this because I think the notion of putting a recruitment freeze in place that would affect frontline workers um, is barmy because there is a distinct shortage of frontline workers in the health service, particularly nurses, doctors, and indeed consultants. One of the problems, of course, we have is that so many of our medical graduates, be they nurses or doctors, actually leave the country as soon as they come out of college because they don't believe the Irish Health Service is a good one in which to work. This freeze on recruitment will obviously exacerbate that situation. But I think more warningly from the perspective of the citizens of the country, it would appear that in 2024, the delivery of health service will actually deteriorate again. The politics of that will be really, really difficult but clearly, you know, the government in the budget last week decided they were going to curb spending in the health service and it didn't feature very much actually in the budget. Um, and this follows a significant over spending overshoot by the HSE this year, as indeed has been the case in recent years. And there is a rumor doing the rounds and I mention it. I can absolutely not confirm this to be the case, but there is a rumor doing the rounds that Stephen Donnelly, the Minister for Health, will not be standing for re-election whenever the election is held over the next 15 or 16 months. As I say, I have no idea if that's true or not. It is a rumour that is doing the rounds at the moment. That would, of course, send out an incredibly negative message about the management of the health service and what's actually happening there. So uh, that's the controversial piece of the budget, really. 
Jim, I know that there is no chance at all that you would ever become a politician. I know somebody once told me, shall we say, that you were invited to uh, have a political career at one point in your life, but let's not go there. You wouldn't accept an invitation, but let's just assume for a second that you were part of the next Doyle, that you were an, a new TD, and the Taoiseach, Mary Lou, comes up to you and offers you the health portfolio. What would you say to her? I'd faint. Can I have some smelling salts? I mean, Chris, there's a lot of aspects of this. There's not a straightforward answer. I mean, since 1997, we've seen a dramatic increase in the funding of the in the funding of the health service, with the exception of the period after 2008, when we saw a cut in absolute and in real terms. And, you know, some would argue that it was those years of cutback in spending um, that gave rise to the problems we're now having. So that that's one aspect. The, the second aspect is the reality is we have increased spending generally quite significantly. Uh, there will be over 22 billion spent on the delivery of health services this year, a little bit more next year. Um, the focus is very much on the inputs in a financial sense. How much do we spend? How much do we increase spending by? There is a lot less focus on the manner in which that spending is turned into better health service delivery. So there's very little focus on outputs. And in fact, many of the outputs, such as waiting lists, such as patients on trolleys, um, continue to be very, very bad. So the problem with the health service is that um, if you were taken over as Minister for Health in the morning, um, you wouldn't be starting where we are now. I mean, basically, the whole model needs to be taken apart and recreated. But obviously, that is not possible to do. So I I would not envy anybody who will actually step into that position when it next becomes vacant. Yeah, I think there's so many, so many different strands there. It would be fun to pick at, at any one of them. And let's let not spend too much time on things health service. But the... Uh, I wasn't, and I know you weren't either, party to any of the discussions uh, during the budget about HSE funding. But the the relative silence on whether how much money they are getting next year, the government's attitude towards that budget shortfall that you mentioned in particular, and the fact that the government is just basically on the surface just said, "And well, you know, deal with it, get on with it," strikes me as saying that the government is looking somewhat askance at the HSC, saying, we think that no matter how much money we gave you, you would still have a budget deficit of between one and two billion. And it's invariant to the way to the figure that you start the year with. And that's consistent, I think, with everybody's if everybody looks back at the last God knows how many years, this happens happens every year. It doesn't matter what state the economy is in, it doesn't matter how much money they've been given at the beginning of the year. I think you'd find that almost every single year, the only issue has been the budget overrun. And I think the government has started by implication to buy into the idea that you could give the HSE any amount of money and they still, they'd manage to spend it and still have a budget deficit, which strikes to a lack of control and your hints there that there are structural issues associated with the, the HSE. So I think two things seemingly in contradiction are possible. The HSE does need more resources than it's getting at the moment because of technical change, demography, and all the rest of it. That is true. So it needs more money than it's getting. But it shouldn't get the money in its current form. It needs, as you say, fundamental restructuring. 
and recognizing all sorts of different things, not least the fact that, you know, that there should be fewer hospitals rather than more in Ireland and that political hot potato and many of the practices, work practices within the HSE need reform and the thing needs to be made more efficient and all that good stuff. So nobody is ever going to grasp that nettle, Jim. And so I suspect our great grandchildren will, who when they inherit this amazing podcast will still be having this conversation, won't they? Uh, yeah, they will, Chris. Um, I, I, I guess one thing you could say about this is that this is not a problem unique to Ireland. Many countries are currently struggling to deliver proper health oh, services. It, the same here in the UK. There was a great article in one of the Sundays this weekend written by a young journalist who was re relating the conversations she has with people over the age of 40 about the health service. And she said she suddenly realised that her generation, she would be Generation Z, I guess, to, to use one of the descriptors of the, the, the demographic and generational divide. And when she speaks to anybody over 40, she realizes that they still use the NHS in, expectation, in an expectation that it's going to be there for them. And she says anybody of her generation is now gradually turning to private medicine when they can. And so that things like private GPs are really flourishing here in the UK now. And she uses a private GP, this young journalist, all the time when she can afford it and avoids the NHS like the plague and keeps her fingers crossed that she doesn't get so seriously ill that she needs the NHS. And she says that the, the reason for this is very simple. Well, over the age of 40, remember the NHS when it worked. And that's what they think they still will get when they use the NHS. It might be the odd queue and the odd difficult phone call here trying to get an appointment. But somewhere there is an NHS waiting for them that is the one that they remember from a few years ago. Whereas somebody under the age of 40 has never experienced an NHS that works. And so therefore, they don't expect one that works. And so they're turning to private medicine. And this journalist quoted some statistics showing, for example, that the use of private GPs is skyrocketing here in the UK. Mm -hmm. uh, so, so it's interesting. I think people are voting with their feet. People are realizing that our health systems are completely and utterly screwed. There is a conspiracy theory here in the UK that it's it, that there is a significant wing of the Tory party that is very happy with this, that the forcing us to use private medicine is what they wanted all along because they hate the concept of, of the NHS itself and that they know that's a political hot potato. Um, that's all a bit conspiratorial for my view. I'm not a conspiracy theorist, but certainly the behavior of some of these people is entirely consistent with that particular conspiracy theory. So anyway, Jim, tell yeah. us about what else has happened. Yeah, yeah. One, one final point I would make, you asked me the question about the health service, and I was saying that I'm kind of conflicted in many ways. Um, the notion of having a freeze on recruitment of frontline workers does disturb me, particularly following a budget that ended up giving people like me energy credits of 450 euro between now and April. There's nothing stopping um, you donating it to the HSE, Jim. Of course there's not, Chris, but um, if you multiply that by the number of households who will be in receipt of that, it's an incredibly expensive populist measure. I would prefer to see that money being used to address frontline services in the health sector, to be honest. Okay, uh, but, there, but there is a huge, huge issue about um, the efficiency of the health service. Um, the other interesting thing that has happened in Ireland, the CSO has just published the latest merchandise trade data. Um, in the first eight months of the year, exports are down by 4.6%, chemical and related products down by 3.8%. 
And within that, um, organic chemicals are down by 13.1%, medical and pharma um, products down by 6%, and electrical machinery down by 40.6%. So there is something, um, you know, worrying increasingly creeping into the export numbers here. And if I may give you the numbers I just cited were for the first eight months of the year cumulatively, the month of August organic chemical exports were 66.5% lower than August last year. Um, medical and pharmaceutical products, which had been under pressure, were 6% up on August of last year. And electrical machinery, and my understanding is that um, chips are included in that, down by 51.4%. And I think there is a China effect here. And I know we always say you cannot jump to any conclusions based on one month's data, particularly something as volatile as exports. But there is this creeping weakness in the export performance. And of course, that was the reason why the ESRI had a pretty downbeat economic forecast for Ireland in the days leading up to the budget. So as I keep saying every month when we discuss these trade numbers, um, it is one to keep an eye on because definitely the chemical and pharmaceutical sector is going through a post-COVID adjustment. Um, there is definitely a change in the value of the unit products that we're selling in that area following gross inflation during COVID. Uh, but I think the most important thing now to watch is how does that actually affect employment in the sector, number one, and number two, and more importantly, uh, the corporation tax take from that sector, which, as we've discussed many times, uh, it's an incredibly important part of the tax base. But that's the domestic story, Chris. Um, you wrote a piece this morning about the situation in Israel and the Gaza um, I have to say every presentation I do at the moment, and I've, I've done a lot in the last week, um, when I get into the global geopolitical piece, um, and that's where I like to spend most of my time now, um, it would utterly depress you what's going on. You know, we have the longer term sort of China-US relationship with the dangerous Taiwanese situation in the middle of that. We have what's going on in Western and Central African countries in terms of coups and the Russian involvement there. Uh, we have the Ukraine war, um, which is ongoing and it has sort of disappeared a little bit from the public narrative over the last couple of weeks because of the Israeli situation. But um, there's a lot of disturbing stuff happening and dangerous stuff happening in Crimea at the moment. Um, and then, of course, we have the Israeli situation. So, And I could go on and on. But I, I just cite um, a point that was made at the beginning of the uh, United Nations General Assembly meeting in New York a few weeks back when it was stated that there was the greatest number of wars currently happening on Earth at any, than at any time since 1945. So I think geopolitically, the world is in an incredibly dangerous place at the moment and you could become utterly depressed if you think too much about it it's dangerous 
Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Yes, and I think the trivial answer to that then is stop thinking about it because I would say uh, nobody actually knows what's going to happen next. I think if you think about it, in that probabilistic way, uh, we are in a very, very difficult time. There is no certainty about what happens next, but this is what a summary of what I wrote in a different context for a, a different organization this morning about the you know loads of gloomy analyses that are appearing. And what they all have in common are a number of features. First, a lot of them look back on Russia's invasion of Ukraine as the start of something, something akin actually to the events that began with the assassination of Archduke Ferdinand in June 1914. That was the shot that started World War I, of course. And what they're doing is that they are looking at all sorts of disparate events. You've listed some there, and they're linking them in certain ways. It's a join-the-dots exercise. And as you say, the war in Ukraine, Iran's threatened war against Israel. I think there have been seven coups in Africa over the last few months conflict between Azerbaijan and Armenia. Serbia might actually be about to invade Kosovo. The US has placed two very large carrier aircraft carrier groups in the eastern Mediterranean. And of course, as you again have said, the Chinese threats against Taiwan are all uh, omnipresent. Now, all of these things put together for a lot of observers are beginning to look like a pattern, not a series of random event. And the thread if there is one, and I would stress there is still an if, that links most or all of these conflicts, these events, actual or threatened, is, in the eyes of many observers, growing American dysfunction, chaos in Washington, and in particular, the new mood of isolation, isolationism in the United States, very reminiscent of the mid-late 1930s. One quite common and plausible, in my view, interpretation of post-World War II history is that the world went through a very unusually peaceful period. It wasn't peaceful. It was relatively peaceful compared to global history over the previous God knows how many thousands of years. Read any history book and every single page has got a war of one kind or another in it. So the world went through an unusually peaceful period, mostly because of something called Pax Americana, the peace that America not imposed on the world, but helped the world to achieve as a result of becoming the world's global policeman. And I, I cite lots of different commentators 
There's a professor of strategic studies at Johns Hopkins, very well-known guy in that space called Hal Brands. We've talked about Noah Smith a lot in different contexts. He's written an extensive piece about this issue. Niall Ferguson, a admittedly right-wing uh, historian, uh, wrote a very long-form piece over the weekend that for once... Chris, I what's wrong with being a right-wing historian? Nothing at all, Jim. Uh, but for once, the difference is that this time when he's written something, there's not a lot of political polemic in it. He's, he has his proper hist academic historian hat on rather than his right-wing political polemicist hat on. So that's why I think his article actually carried greater weight than his normal rants and raves, particularly when he tries to do economics. It's always a disaster when Niall Ferguson tries to be an economist. Hold on a sec, Chris. Can I just take you up on that? Do you ever talk about left-wing historians in the same context? Well, I think I've often mentioned uh, your, your. I nearly said prime minister, your president is a left-wing historian in quite derogatory, well, critical terms. I don't want to be disrespectful of your glorious leader, but uh, he, he, he's a left-wing historian, isn't he? Or is he, or is he no. some, some kind of social scientist? No, he's, a social, he's, he's certainly not a historian. Oh, right. Sorry. Yeah. I, I, I stand corrected. No, I, I just I just think it's funny the way everybody sort of um, characterizes everybody else as being of a certain ideological disposition when they're mentioning what they're saying. Yeah, um, I guess I guess it, we're, it, for me, it's always trying to place it in context, trying to say, OK, well, this is what this person says. This is what they normally say. This is these are their, their ideological predispositions. And so therefore, maybe you need to aim off from that. Maybe we should just let people make their own mind up and just point them at the articles or books and say, read it, make your own mind up. Um, what I'm trying to do here is just summarize, really. Um, so shall I go on? Please do. I will. All right. So all of these writers, left wing, right wing, no wing, maybe these maybe these are flightless commentators. They don't have any wings, Jim. So uh, they all agree that the threats that we've listed today and they have listed in their pieces um, have not been as great for a very long time. And they th think that that's mostly because Pax Americana is over. We, the world doesn't have a policeman anymore. I would stress in all of that gloom, that particularly when they're like likening it to the start of World War I and asking the question, has World War III already started, is that he, history does teach us that what happens next is most unlikely to have been predicted by anybody already. Um, the more apocalyptic as analysts, of course, see two threats. Um, first, the Israeli armed forces are, are overwhelmed, actually, by fighting a three-front war in Gaza, the West Bank, and along the Lebanese border. And that somewhere along those three war fronts, perhaps along all of them, is, is that there will appear Iran. And that will suck the U.S. in, those two carrier fleets. And if the U.S. gets stuck in to Iran via the Israeli conflict, then perhaps Iran's new best friend, do you know who Iran's new best friend is? Russia gets involved. Um, as an intermediate step, something that worries me, this is not mentioned by very many people at all, but I'm really nervous about this as, as a possibility, only because I, I'm ask, asking the question, I'm asked the question a lot, actually, could this be a rerun of the 1970s? I say no, because I don't see any evidence that the oil price is going to quadruple. Um, it's gone up a bit, but not a huge amount. Um, the thing I'm worried about, actually, more than the oil price, is the natural gas price. And that's because of the role of Qatar, which does supply an awful lot of the world's natural gas. 
And if they took it upon themselves to, to protest, what well, perhaps what well, just to protest something or other, let's not assume they will take any one particular side in this conflict, but they do take a side. And as a consequence of that, they disrupt global supplies of natural gas in the same way that OPEC disrupted oil in the 1970s. If that were to happen, and it's a big if, that would make last year's spike in energy prices in gas prices in particular, which we all suffered greatly from, that would look like a walk in the park. The other big foreseeable threat, of course, is Taiwan. And China has said, and this is Noah's point, China couldn't have said more clearly, more loudly, more often that it's going to take Taiwan back. What it hasn't said is how or when. If it intends to do so violently over the next few years, now couldn't be a better time. They're not going to get a better opportunity when America is more distracted, when the world is turned elsewhere in terms of its attention. The problem with taking Taiwan is the presence of U.S. forces all around the Pacific have the capability when the Chinese Navy sets sail for Taiwan, and presumably there'll be some kind of barrage, some kind of rocketry thing going on to soften up Taiwan before the Navy sets sail to invade. There's enough American firepower, according to NOAA, in the region to take out the entire fleet when it sets sail for Taiwan by the time it gets there. So therefore, if China is going to do the military thing, invade Taiwan, it's got to take out all of those American bases first, which, of course, is World War III. Let's face it, that's what that would mean. So lots of people are joining lots of dots, me included. Um, and it's, it is, after all, the favorite activity of the armchair analyst. And the pictures that emerge from these joining the dot exercises can be truly alarming, but they're just exercises and they could be, and we sincerely hope at the moment that they're also completely wrong. But I have to note that lots of people are drawing very, very similar pictures. They're joining these dots in very, very similar ways. And none of the outcomes that I've seen in all of the reading that I've done, and I've done a lot, none of that conclusions I've seen are very, very positive. So Jim, I sorry, went on for far longer than I intended there. What, if anything, do you make of all of that? Are you indeed still there or have you gone down the pub? Uh, no, Chris. I mean, as I said in my introduction there, um, all of these events are all related. They are all extremely dangerous. And, um, you know, God knows what's going to happen over the coming months and indeed over the coming days. Um, it is reported this afternoon, for example, that US defense officials have convinced the Israeli government not to launch a preemptive strike on the Hezbollah for and the Hezbollah forces in Lebanon, for example. Um, but, you know, how long will that last? And the, the role of Iran in all of this, uh, the role of Russia in all of this, um, it is incredibly dangerous. And, uh, you know, I, I, I think you, mu you might be able to bring it back to this objective that many countries have of weakening the West. You know, there is an overarching global agenda at play here and the world is just becoming more and more polarized in that context and it's just becoming more and more da dangerous. So I have to say I would share all of your pessimism and concern about this because um, whatever way you parse it, it's an incredibly dangerous, uncertain, potentially volatile situation. The only thing one can really do is keep one's fingers crossed. Can I end up with, um, it may be clutching at straws, but a note of optimism. 
I uh, and I'll shut up after this. I've recently reread Brad DeLong's book, Slouching Towards Utopia, which is the best work on economic history that and recent economic history, actually, that I've read in a very long time. And I was reminded of something called the Truman Doctrine, which was the policy that the United States followed after the Second World War of not confronting Russia, but containing Russia. It was a containment policy. And one of the th many, many different things that emerged from that was that the author of the containment policy, a guy called George Kennan, you probably heard the name, talked about the, the happy set of circumstances in which that the external Russian threat had meant that the people in the United States had done a few things. One is that they'd, they'd come together, as external threats will often cause disunited, disparate peoples to come together. Um, one of the best things could, that could happen to the world at the moment would be the appearance of hostile aliens, because then we might actually forget our own differences. That's a favorite science trope in science fiction, by the way. Anyway, George Kennan said, United States, people of the United States will come together because they realize that they face this common enemy, the, um, the Russians. And, that, uh, and that's exactly what happened, actually. There was a certain degree of, it wasn't, it wasn't a, a, a wholly united peoples. And Jim, you know, Churchill once said that America can be relied upon to do the right thing, but only after it's tried everything else. And so I wonder whether all of this that's going on at the moment, if the likes of me and you can be sat here thinking, oh my God, America retreating from its role on the world stage and just going into, into itself in Washington, D.C. and having all these complete Trumpist lunatic politicians uh, causing the chaos that they're causing in the United States and therefore the world, maybe enough of them. It certainly won't bring all of them to their senses, but in the same way that Kennan observed that the external Russian threat in the 1950s brought enough Americans to their senses back then, maybe that will, something like that over the next year or two will happen as a result of these events. People in America indulged in these ridiculous conspiracy, flight of fancy, self-indulgent bullshit politics will realize that the world is a very, very serious place that can become very dangerous very quickly unless very serious, decent people are in charge. Any chance of that happening, do you think? Well, I just observe what's happening with the replacement of Kevin McCarthy, Speaker of the House, um, over the last couple of weeks. Uh, it's become a total circus. And in terms of something that might force the US political system to unite, you know, fight these forces of evil around the world. Um, it's just hard to see it happening at the moment. So the more I see of, we, we talk about the polarization of global politics, but when you look at the domestic polarization within the United States, uh, that is a real source of concern in all of this, because I think there is no doubt about it that the election of Trump and the damage that did to the unity of the US political system, and it had been ongoing or evolving before Trump, but certainly was exacerbated by Trump. When you think about the weakness, the perceived weakness of the United States that created, when you look at the whole Brexit debacle in the UK and the, 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 the message that sent out about the perceived weakness of the European Union and disunity across the then European Union when Britain was on board, um, you know, if the United States and Europe um, are looking this fragile, it certainly does present a huge opportunity for um, belligerent forces or malforces to actually do stuff. And China, Taiwan, as you've mentioned, 
um, is the most dangerous example. Yes, um, I'm, I'm struggling to end the podcast on an optimistic note, Jim, and you keep dragging me back. I mean, I was trying there to say just maybe that all of these threats. I hope you're right, Chris. Well, so do I, mate. Shall see, we call- you, you, you've had a very bad weekend with your two, your adopted rugby team, Ireland, and your your own rugby team, Wales, all bowing out. And I'd say the fact that the UK is the only unbeaten team left. England, in- you mean, not UK. Sorry, England, I beg your pardon. <laughs> well, that just tells me that there is, you know, if there is a God, he's one with a very warped sense of humour. If England are the last team left in the World Cup unbeaten, uh, either there is no God or the one that we've got is not the one that many of these um, priests and mullahs think that we have. Chris, I'll talk to you. I'm off to Portugal for the next two days working, so I'll talk to you later in the week and I'll, I'll report back from that part of the world. Have a nice holiday, Jim. It's Ta-da. not a holiday, Chris. I'm working, okay? Enjoy yourself. Ta da. You have been listening to Chris Johns and Jim Power on the other hand. We hope you enjoyed it. Our back catalogue of podcasts can be found on our Substack account, www.cjpeconomics.substack.com or on podcast platforms such as Apple and Spotify. If you would like to listen to the podcast free of advertisements, you can sign up to our Substack account. Comments and feedback are much appreciated.